Hi there, this is Anne, the Animal Intuitive. I wanted to mention that if you want to see any of these podcasts on video, please go to the link in the description for the Animal Intuitive channel on YouTube. And also, for those who just like to see things written out or you want a reference to look at that goes along with this video, I do have a blog post. It has a little bit more information as well that you might want to look at. That link is in the description. And basically anything you want to find can be found through my website, intuitivetouchanimalcare.com. You can check out my animal communication classes as well as how to book an animal communication consultation with me. And now on to the show. So while I would never, ever want to downplay the reason for why it can be so difficult to deal with the loss of a pet or even have a missing pet or have a pet taken away for some reason or have to have a pet go live somewhere else, I would never, ever downplay that. However, what we have found is that there is some neuroscience that has come out that is actually able to help us with the grieving process and help us to avoid things like complicated grief. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. I felt it was important to talk about these findings, not only because they can help people who are grieving the loss of a pet at this time, but also because also these can help with preventing having a stronger or more difficult prolonged reaction to having a loss of a pet in the future. And also, I see a strong correlation between, of course, it's not, of course, scientifically proven, but I see a connection, let's just say, between animal communication and these scientific findings, scientific findings. And I want to talk about that because I think that's really important and it can help. So welcome to the Animal Intuitive Show, where we talk about animal communication, natural pet care, and we have interviews with experts in the fields of animal care and advocacy. I'm Ann Angela Webb, the Animal Intuitive. I'm a professional animal communicator, meaning I understand what animals are thinking and feeling, and I help pet parents to overcome issues with behavior, emotional issues. I help with physical well-being, with animal communication, massage, and acupressure, which I'm certified in, and I share that information on the show weekly. And also, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and that isn't necessarily a part of being something officially that I do with being an animal communicator. However, I am putting that hat on a little bit tonight so that I can talk about this because I focus as a clinical social worker on holistic and integrative counseling. Okay, that all being said, I hope everyone is having a good night, and I appreciate anyone who's here watching or watching the replay, and I encourage you to share this with others because it can really help other people who might be going through the grieving process. Hi, Judian. Good to see you tonight. Thank you for being here. So I'm going to be doing a more simplified version of the latest research than I found out there. I actually watched some videos and did some reading, of course, and I really tried to simplify this. I do want to give some credit where credit is due, though, just to start out with. If you decide that you want to go find some real in-depth information, there is like a over two-hour-long video that Andrew Huberman did. Huberman Labs is the name of his YouTube channel. I think I got that. I'm going to put the link in the description. And if you really want to delve into this, go there and feel free to watch that too. I hope that you'll stay and watch this though, because he obviously doesn't talk about animal communication. Okay, so I, oh, hello everyone. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Mel Mac. And no, you did not miss much. I'm late as usual. It's good to see everybody here. Thank you for coming. And yeah, so I also I want to start out with this quote from Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, who's a leader in the world of neuroscience. And she is also going to actually be coming on the show, but she won't be able to do that for until March, I believe. So hopefully that'll nothing will change with that. But she's extremely busy right now. I actually think Andrew Huberman is I don't know if he's had her or he's having her on a show. So 
she's really in demand right now. So I'm really happy that she's agreed to come on the show. But of course, it's going to be delayed a little bit. Okay, Dr. Frances O'Connor is the person who did some really great research on the neuroscience of grief through the University of Arizona. And I'm going to just quote something that she says, which is, when we experience a loss through death, our brain initially cannot comprehend that the dimension we usually use to locate our loved ones simply doesn't exist anymore. And that was from her book, Walking in the Dark, which is creating, sorry, Walking in the Dark, creating a new, creating a new virtual map in your brain after loss. I also want to mention that I am not a vet and I am not in really talking as much actually about animals in this episode. I'm talking a little bit more about people because we're talking about pet loss, but I do want to mention that and I am not treating anyone with being a licensed clinical social worker. And if you are having any sort of really strong reaction to the, for any reason, loss of a pet or otherwise, please follow up with your provider for help in that situation. Okay, so what does creating a map mean when after loss? Oh, you guys have tornado loss. Wow, tornado warnings. Yeah, we've had a little lightning tonight. Be safe. Be careful. Okay, so Dr. O'Connor led a team of researchers. I have to just slow this down a little bit. Got a little teleprompter. It's going really fast. Okay. Dr. O'Connor led a team of researchers, as mentioned, who made some important discoveries about grief, and more specifically, how to prevent complicated and prolonged grief and its relationship to rewards pathways, which I will talk more about in a moment. And by the way, Dr. O'Connor has a survey on her website. I will have that in the description too. And you can take that survey and you're supposed to get results about if you are in the process of grieving and it can be grieving many different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be a death. And you're supposed to get the results of that. And you'll also be contributing to some scientific research. So you might want to check that out. Okay, so moving on. I want to just give a little bit of an understanding of what complicated grief is versus just regular grief. So complicated grief occurs when an individual experiences prolonged, unabated grief. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the neuroscience is now helping with how to how to go in how to move forward in and also how to help to prevent and also how to help when there is complicated grief. I think it's important to just touch on the stages of grief as we've traditionally understood them and some misunderstandings that we may have about grief. So in 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a book on death and dying. And she, in that book, went in depth into the stages of grief as we have come to understand them. And she taught from the perspective that we go through five stages of grief and that we go through them in a certain order. And I remember studying this in graduate school and was taught this way, but this theory has evolved because graduate school is a very long time ago for me. And I am, by the way, no, long, no, no way dismissing or downplaying the work that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross brought to the world of psychology and the understanding of grief has been very important and it's really laid the foundation. But more has been discovered as things will be, things that evolve. And we have found that the stages of grief are not always linear. So they don't always go the same for everybody in the order that we traditionally understood them. And we can even go back and forth in the stages of grief. And just to lay some foundation about what we're going to be discussing, I'm just briefly going to go over the five stages of grief. Many people are familiar with these, but just really fast. Denial. Oh, I also want to mention, if anybody does want me to communicate with their pet on the show, I will be doing that after this. And so if you're watching, I try to do timestamps if we end up having people come on who want me to talk to their pets after the lesson, vice versa. I am extremely busy right now, so I don't know if that'll happen, but fast forward if that's what you're looking for. Okay, so denial, this, can, this can't have happened. Denial's a stage of grief. Used to be the first stage of grief. 
this cannot have happened. It just can't be real. Then anger. So I'm going to talk about people, animals, and things during this, but more so animals because this is an animal-related show. And thank you so much, Mel Mac. I appreciate you mentioning that. If you do find this beneficial, please hit the thumbs up button and make sure you're subscribed to the show. Whoops. Okay. I lost myself here. And you will get, if you hit the notification bell, you'll be notified in the future when the show is, is coming on. Most people know that, but thank you so much, Mel Mac. I appreciate it. Okay. So, and then anger, as I was starting to say, recognizing the animal is gone, but in your body and mind, you go into a motivated state. And this is what we're going to be talking about more, the science that's come out about this. And this is a motivated state of wanting to get to the animal. Or again, person, person, animal, or thing. And thing would be like if you, I don't know, you had a wedding ring or something like that, and you your spouse maybe has already passed and that was your that was a big tie to them, and then you lose the wedding ring. So that would be an example of a thing. And that can be very difficult for people. Bargaining, which is like that negotiating phase. If I had just done this or that, having trouble refusing to accept it at that point. And also if I don't think about it, it won't be real, can be an aspect of that. Depression, why should I go on living in this really difficult stage of life of grieving and it doesn't seem like a stage it just seems like it's going to go on and on forever and why should it go on living it seems to really take away any sort of joy or happiness or richness in life that I had when this animal was here and then finally acceptance or internalizing the loss so it's not just cognitive you just you just don't get it up in your head but emotionally you feel it will be okay. This animal has passed, but it, it will be okay. And as mentioned, we can go through not, we don't have to necessarily go into all of those stages. Not everyone does. We have realized through research and we could go back and forth between different stages. So what has been more recently discovered is that we actually map our experiences, experiences of people, pets, things in three dimensions. And what that means is first, just to say what those three are, our space, time, and consciousness. Okay. So we're going to get more in depth into this, but I want to touch on a paper by Dr. O'Connor because it is also an important part of where we're going with this. And then I'm going to get back to those three things, the space and the time and the connection. Okay. So this paper talks about why some people may have a harder time moving through grief. Dr. O'Connor found that human subjects with higher levels of autonomic arousal, and that would be referring to the autonomic nervous system, and particularly its sympathetic nervous system functions, which result in physiological symptoms. So that would be like anxiety and fear. So like sweating, palpitations, dry mouth, lightheadedness, upset stomach, those can be signs of activation of the sympathetic nervous system. The people who have higher likelihood towards those types of symptoms statistically have a higher likelihood of having complicated grief, maybe even more prolonged grief. And again, I'm going to let Dr. O'Connor, when she comes on the show, get more in depth into this. I'm giving an overview. So if you're ever anticipating losing someone, which of course we all will in our lifetime, of course, it would be beneficial to make a conscious effort of keeping our epinephrine or our adrenal levels down just as a course of how we live our lives, especially if you know yourself to be somebody who tends to be more anxiety prone. You would want to try to work on that when you are not going through grieving because it will help you when you do have to deal with loss. And it's interesting because this is not actually seeing the link between higher levels of autonomic arousal 
pre-grief in depression alone. So if somebody just has depression, they're not making this connection. It's specifically having to do with grief. So the conclusion, of course, would be to try to counteract those states in your life before you're in the grieving process. And that would be things we talk about here on this show, like acupressure, massage, activating the vagus nerve, which I'm going to briefly about here today. I was hoping to have some nice little charts, but I didn't get to that. And I apologize for that. But so I'm just going to show you something really simple that can be done in a little bit. Okay, so I want to quote Andrew Huberman. He put it in a great way. He said, it's being somewhat inoculated towards your likelihood of experiencing complicated grief by reducing your levels of adrenaline. He mentions that this prepares us to access grief when it's appropriate, and I'm getting to that, and yet being able to move through it at a pace and in a way that's most appropriate to us. And I do have videos, as I mentioned on here, about calming pets, but those are also things you could do for yourself using some of those acupressure points especially and tapping as well. Okay, so what is grief in your brain and body? Although it does involve sadness, brain areas associated with pain are more active when somebody is grieving than with people who are not grieving. And Mary Frances O'Connor, Dr. O'Connor, found that enduring grief activates the brain reward center. There is more there's a tendency towards more activity in the reward center of the brain known as the nucleus accumbens. And I have a little picture for you because I know you all really want to see that nucleus accumbens. There it is. (laughs) Yay. Okay. There's more activity in the nucleus accumbens. So this means we need to think about grief as a motivation state. So to illustrate this, I wrote, imagine it's the dead of winter, but it is the dead of winter and you lose heat and you're, it's one o'clock in the morning, it's freezing in your home and it's, you have no heat and across the room is a blanket and you can't get to that blanket. Just imagine this. You, for whatever reason, cannot get to that blanket and you're lying in bed and you're freezing. You just have like your regular blanket, but now you, it's freezing and it's, over there and you can't get to it and you're just shivering, but you want nothing more to get that blanket on you. Okay. That's what we're talking about when your motivation is activated, but it's just out of reach in grief. When you think about that with the motivation state with no resolution in grief, wanting to get to that animal, but you can't. So FMRIs, some brain imaging studies were done and they were used to evaluate which area of the brain is more active than others during grieving. They showed that motivation, craving, pursuit, these were brain areas that were more active during stages of grief. So they were showing that grief is not only a state of sadness and pain, but it's a state of motivation and desire to get to something just out of your reach until you remap your relationship to that animal. And the nucleus accumbens is a part of the brain in which dopamine has the effect of creating a motivational state. So dopamine is not only associated with feeling good, as we tend to think. Okay, so dopamine is about placing us into a state of desiring things and seeking things. And this can happen with addiction or just even being thirsty and really wanting a drink of water or being hungry and just any state of wanting to reach for something that's outside of our immediate ability to give that thing to ourselves. This is very important for understanding grief. It's not just a state of sadness. It is a state of desire and reaching for something. I keep emphasizing that because it comes up as we go along. And it's something to really try to internalize that understanding. So to quote Andrew Huberman again, 
in understanding grief, that is a state of pain and a state of wanting. And he was very good. I just want to say, I have to credit him because he really, every time he talked about the things that you would be craving or yearning for, he would say an animal or a pet. I really appreciated that about him. And he explained that too. He went in and said, it's not just people. It can be people. Animals are so important to people. So I want to give him credit for that. And then of course, he also mentioned things too. So I keep interrupting my own self. So losing a pet or missing or taking away that pet, that state of wanting and desire drives an activation state in us. The activation of those reward centers and involvement of dopamine puts us in an anticipatory state. So it's a state of waiting for something to happen and just desiring action. Our bodies are seeking to resolve the craving even if we know that it's impossible. And thank you for putting in that Dr. O'Connor's information in the chat too. I need a drink here, just a second. Okay, so studies have helped us to understand how attachments are represented in our brain. Attachment and the breaking of attachment in healthy ways are governed by dimensions, features of the world that are represented in our brains. So he goes on to talk about our relationship to anyone and anything in these three dimensions in which we map our relationships And being able to do this helps us to understand better why it's so painful when we lose a beloved pet or when they are no longer accessible to us. And why it takes a certain amount of time to remap and re-understand our relationship to them and to better reorient in the grief process and move through it more functionally. And this kind of does sound very clinical. And again, I don't mean to sound like I'm taking away the, that, that connection and depth of relationship, but you, you actually want to do that. You want to step away from it for a second and understand what's going on in our brains and our bodies so that we can move through grieving in a more functional way. And I'm not a person who likes to say, healing necessarily because that can mean a lot of different things it can be a kind of a triggering word if for people to say that that you'll heal because that isn't necessarily true and that can be on a lot of different levels what that means so to me it's like moving through grieving and whatever that means in your life as you move through your life until the end of your own life and it may mean that you're never fully healed but you can be more functional in it, more adaptive. Okay, so again, the three dimensions with the grieving process that we need to remap have to do with space, time, and closeness. And these have to do with how we relate to an animal or a person or a thing. And I'm mentioning the people again too, because sometimes I think even though we're animal people here, Sometimes it can maybe make a little bit more sense when we first think about it with a person. Maybe for some people, I don't know, but I just want to mention that. Okay, so in order to move through grief, we are working with a map of emotional closeness in the brain and body that is interwoven in a very intimate way with a map of where the being you are grieving is in a, in physical space to you. So how far they are from you physically. Okay, and then also time, how long until you can see them again? In other words, how long will it take for you to reach them or for them to reach you? With the space and time component, those things change when you lose a pet because you obviously you, physically you can no longer walk over to them and you no longer have a sense of how long it will take to get to them. Those things now have shifted. And also because if we are very attached to another being at a deep level, this is almost always connected to our recollection of memories that we have of them. We use those memories to recall what has happened with that being 
and what was just going on, where it happened, when it happened. When our loved pet is gone, our episodic memories are still linked to our feelings of attachment. So grief is the process of uncoupling that attachment in relationship to space and time. In grief, our entire memory bank and ability to predict where and when they will be, when we can, so to speak, feed our attachment, the whole map becomes, and I'm quoting Andrew Huberman here, obliterated, because I think that was a really important way to put it. But the attachment persists because of our memories in that grief process. So you still have those memories. It still keeps you attached. And the rich, so that rich memory bank, it doesn't go away and it continues to make predictions, which is what our brains do. It makes predictions about when we will see that loved one. There are neural circuits that put us in a state of still seeking them as we did before, even though logically we may know the reality of the situation. It's very disorienting to maintain this attachment and not be able to make those predictions about when you're going to see that loved one. So still having the attachment, but you don't know, your brain can't predict. It's distorting. When, when am I going to see them? It used to be this. Now that's not right. You're having, your brain's like having issues. It's going on the fritz a little bit. So the brain relies more on experience than knowledge. So you can know something, but your brain's going with what it used to know, what it experienced before. The closer to someone we are, the more information about them we have, obviously, and the more the brain has, and I quote, implicit, sorry, and I quote, implicit unconscious notions of where and when and how they will show up. So what can be done to help us in grief? Psych psychologists and neuroscientists are suggesting the best way to move through grief is not to devalue or pretend the intensity of the attachment doesn't exist, but instead to change the sense of time and space. So this remapping we're talking about. So we know scientifically speaking that the brain works in a way so that when anything reminds us of, or we think about our pet, it pushes us into that state of wanting to act in a way that was like when they were here. It's important to mention that there is nothing wrong about that emotional state of grief. We don't want to devalue that at all. But to help in the grieving process in a way that is more functional and adaptive, we need to recognize that the brain is doing things that we are not necessarily aware of consciously. So the brain is trying to get us to attach to the animal in the way that we used to. So this means there's some steps you can use to hold that attachment in your mind and heart, but that can help with grieving, for lack of a better way to put it, more effectively. So as Huberman puts it, this synthesizes the understanding of research, clinical psychology, and the neuroscience literature. He's found a way to kind of put this into this verbiage that helped me to be able to relate it to you. So I wanted to give him the credit. So it's important to keep in mind that you don't want to undo the, that attachment to your beloved animal. And this is where I see a connection between the science of grieving and animal communication. So we're trying to uncouple from the two dimensions, time and space, but not the connection. So what can we do about this? Setting aside dedicated time, and this can be whatever you can manage, it could be two minutes, it could be five minutes, it could be up to an hour, it's whatever you can do. But what you're trying to do is to really feel deeply that closeness or attachment to the animal. And you can even use my free meditation that I have to do this instead of using in that meditation, I have an animal that acts like a guide on your journey into animal communication. You could use the meditation and just use the image of your pet that has passed. And I think that would help you to be able to do this easier. 
So take advantage of that. And you can get that on my website, intuitivetouchanimalcare.com. So try your best to prevent yourself from thinking about a couple of categories while you're doing this. Actively disengage from counterfactual thinking. So that would be like that bargaining thinking. It would be the what ifs that we sometimes often go through when we're grieving the loss of an animal. What if I had found a better treatment program for my animal? What if I had gone to a different vet? What if I had gotten them to a vet sooner? What if I hadn't opened the door that day and my cat hadn't ran outside? What if I had secured the leash better and my dog hadn't gotten off the collar or all these different things that we can come up with that have to do with the bargaining and there is a never ending road, many roads that you can go down with these and they unfortunately, those are not going to help. They're actually going to prevent you from being able to go through this grieving process in a more adaptive way. Guilt will prevent you from being able to uncouple from that time and space that I mentioned. Try as much as possible to stay in the present moment while experiencing the feeling of that being. So you, all the things we talk about with animal communication, feeling what the animal feels like, really... I try to teach people a couple of different tools for animal communication, but one of them is really becoming the animal and feeling what it feels like to be in that animal's body, feel what their paws feeling, feel what their arms feeling, feel what their fur feels like, feel, sorry, my dog just (laughs) jumped down, feeling their energy and being present in that while experiencing that feeling. And as much as you can, and it's not to say this isn't going to be challenging when you're going through loss, but as much as you can, experiencing being present in that moment without the yearning, without thinking about the what ifs or the how you would how you used to do things, how they would be over here in the morning, how you would walk in the door and they would be here, trying to stay in the present and not go into those memories. Again, this is going to be challenging. It's going to be challenging physically, emotionally, mentally, and it's very normal to flip around in this and to have to bring yourself back to center. And that's why we want to get into hopefully a more relaxed and meditative state when you do this. Try to create a cocoon for yourself when you do this without a lot of distractions and really take the time for yourself. This is important for your process. And I just want to also say that animals don't want us to be stuck in the what ifs and regrets. They always encourage people to live life to the fullest, to take everything that we learned from them when they were in their physical body and use that and help others and spread light and joy. They are never, I never have an animal saying, I'm so mad at you that you did this and I want you to suffer for it and <laughs> not go through. They would like us to fully heal, really. That we, I mentioned that word before that I don't like to just throw it out there all the time, but animals would like us to fully heal. They want the best for us. And I'm going to see, I do think there's questions in here, and I'm going to go back to those. I don't want you to think I'm missing them. Some literature that Huberman mentioned that I think is very helpful is, and I think I might have talked about this in a former episode, like maybe last year when I talked, I did something about grief or maybe animals in spirit or something like that. And I think I might have talked about it, but he referenced it. And he talked about how grief is like a phantom limb and there's research about this and the phantom limb pain. Not, I don't know if everyone's heard of it, but sometimes when people lose a limb, they still experience pain where that limb would be attached in that area. They're feeling 
phantom pain. But it's Shazam, it's very real. It's it's really there. I actually had an uncle who had phantom pain. He had a car accident and this was a very long time ago. And he actually ended up committing suicide because it was so distressing for him. And I'm, there could have been other things going on, but it was a huge issue for him. Okay, they have this, they did this study. Kim is the name, Yun Young Kim, did a study where he used a mirror box. And by using this mirror box, he was able to create a mirror image of the other limb. So if the person had an arm, they were able to have the opposite look like the other arm. And I can't picture it in my mind very well, but basically when the person used this mirror box, the phantom pain got better. So I think that just highlights that our brains do a lot of interesting things that we might not think are possible. And in that case, the brain is able to somehow see that opposite limb and be able to have it affect the person physically. So, and that limb isn't theirs. So that really tells you how much leeway there is to work with our brains. Brains are very interesting and they don't know tons about them, but we're learning. Oh, thank you. He, that was a very long time ago. I think I was very little when that happened, actually. I had a much older father and older uncles. So feeling when we have... Where am I here? I'm sorry, I'm getting lost. Okay, so feeling that feeling when we're engaging with the animal, like we're thinking and feeling about that animal... It exists in this emotional space. And it, if we go into the past and into memories, that reactivates the space and the time aspect. And we don't want that. We don't want to. We want to uncouple from those. All right. So also we want to tap into what we believe in those sessions that we're doing with the animal that we're connecting in with spiritual beliefs will come into play. So you might, without the yearning part, without letting yourself go into that, like I'm trying to get to you, imagine what it is that you believe the form they are in now based on whatever your beliefs are. So if that's heaven, you imagine them and running around this beautiful place, do that. Dedicating some time every day if you can, maybe every other day if you can't, but trying to do what Huberman calls rational grieving. It's a clear acceptance of the new reality and the pet doesn't exist in the space-time dimensionality that we knew them in before, but yet we are holding on and we're anchoring to them, to that attachment. It's not unhealthy anchoring and holding on to them in this way helps us to not go back to those episodic those memories and because those things are going to lead us to look for the pet those things are going to push us into going into the state of yearning and wanting and going towards them so allow yourself to go into this current new configuration of what the animal might be at this time and that emotional bond is still maintained. And again, it's not necessarily easy, but it is one of the most adaptive ways of doing this. And also, if and this doesn't mean that you wouldn't do other things that you might do in the process of grieving. So you might want to go to a therapist and it just doesn't discount that. But it's something that you can add into this process to really help you adaptively grieve. And also just to mention one in 10 people experience complicated and some prolonged form of grief. Maybe that's because we haven't really fully understood what grieving was and we're starting to. And I also just wanted to mention because it helps to highlight some of this. We have cells, we have proximity cells, which would be like if you went into your kitchen in the dark 
you get oriented to where things are because you've been there before. You, you have neuro, neurons in the hippocampus that start to engage in these activities because you are in the expectant proximity to the sink where you want water. And these same neurons map our emotional attachments. So we generally know where to find them and where they live and just where they might be, the beings in our lives, the people, the animals. And these proximity cells are involved in that. We also have trace cells that orient us to space and time. And so these trace cells, when activated, they expect something to be there and it's not there. So become these trace cells become very active when we lose someone. The neurons firing closely associated with neurons that tell us where things should be and what you should feel, that you should like sense that expectation. They should be there when you get up in the morning or come home. And it can be very confusing. So to retrain our brains in this process of adaptively grieving. And also just want to mention that this research is helping us to better understand why two people can experience grief differently. So if you and your spouse or a parent and a child have an animal that passes they might experience the grieving process in a different way because we're all different. We have different, we're made up differently. So it can help people better understand why somebody isn't going through the grieving process the same way we are. And I just want to mention that there was a study on vagal tone. The vagus nerve is helpful with our ability to slow down our heart rate and that can impact our rest and digest our calming our digestion and falling asleep and we can actually access the vagus nerve through our ear so this was the part where i wanted to have a nice diagram for you but didn't get to it and <laughs> I just want to show you, if anyone wants to take a moment to do this ridge here, midpoint of your ear, above your ear canal, but you have this ridge. Right above that, you have a dip that goes in right in there. And if you just massage, you can go in any direction. You could go in a circle. You could go back and forth. That is a very relaxing things to do, thing to do, and it can help with vagal tone. The better your vagal tone is, the more helpful it's going to be with stress. Higher, higher degree of vagal tone is what it's called. Okay, so some people have better vagal tone than others naturally, but you can help to stimulate it doing that. And you can also do it with exhaling. So that breathing in and slowly exhaling can help with that as well. And if you notice when you're maybe really stressed out, we you tend not to exhale. It's like hyperventilating, you need to exhale slowly. So that high degree of vagal tone, you're activating the brake on the stress system as a default. Some people just have it as a default, they do it more and some people need to practice it more. And also wanted to mention that writing might be helpful when we're doing this connection exercise. Maybe writing to the animal that's passed might be helpful for some. And something else that can be helpful when you're going through the grieving process is really trying as much as possible to make sure you get as much sleep as you can because sleep has a big impact on our stress levels. Okay, so... I wanted to just check in with the chat. I saw something way back here to you. Can prolonged grief become depression? I would say they're interwoven, inter intertwined, interwoven. You're probably experiencing depression if you're in grief, but I can't say that definitively. And I don't know that we 
100% know that for sure with the research that they're, they have to come hand in hand, but I would suspect in most they do. And again, if you're experiencing anything that's really weighing on you, never be afraid to seek out help, to reach out and whatever works for you, whether it's going maybe to a naturopathic doctor might help you with some of what's going on in your system when things get thrown off, when we're going through grief. There can be things like supplements and just different things that can help with holistically with the grieving process or whoever you go to. And that might be a therapist. Or also it could be seeking an animal communicator. I'm not trying to do a plug, but I'm just saying that it, being able to ha have someone help you connect in with your pet, sometimes it can be challenging for people. They're not always feeling that they're able to connect in with their pet. They might sometimes people I hear often feel that haven't done the training. Sometimes they'll say, I feel like maybe I'm hearing from my pet, but I don't know for sure. And then they're doubting what they're getting. And it can be helpful to go to a professional animal communicator to help you with that. And I also have classes on here. This class I think would be very appropriate for a situation where somebody's going through grief because it's an intro class that you can do at your own pace. And there's an aspect of mindfulness to it to help us stay in the present. It's got some really good in-depth meditations in there and helps you go through learning how to communicate with animals at your own pace. Okay, so why do we still feel guilty after we lose a pet when we know on the rational side of our brain that we did everything we possibly could for them? Is this normal? The guilt-grief combo is tough. Yeah, I would say a lot of people experience it. I think it's normal in the sense that a lot of people go through that and experience that, yeah. It is, it's that we have that rational part of our brain, but it's just, it's mentioned in the, uh, the five stages of grief. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, identified it as part of it. Interwoven, right? And invented a new word. Let me see if I missed anything else. Oh, Queen Louise, yes, you can ask questions, absolutely. Oh my goodness, your dog passed today. I'm so sorry, I'm just seeing this now. I'm so sorry. Well, you're in the right place. You're with people who understand the intensity of losing an animal. And I'm just so sorry that you're going through that. And I hope this has been in some way helpful. Thank you for coming tonight. Are there any other questions or comments? Does this make sense to people? I hope I explained it okay. It was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot to go through. I went through the Huberman thing a couple times and it was two, over two hours. And uh, so I, I hope I was able to summarize it in a good way, relatively good way. Okay, I don't see any other questions. Yeah, absolutely. You can email me. I think somebody put it there. I think Mel Mack might have put my email and with an E at intuitivetouchanimalcare.com. I do have a second level class coming up. And after that, I have, uh, I know that's a little strange, the order, but I have the second level group class coming up soon. That's on my website, intuitivetouchanimalcare.com. You can link to all the classes. And then I think in February, I have a first level group class coming up. And then I also have private classes too, if people just want to take them privately. Yeah, you're definitely among friends and people who understand. I am so sorry. 
Okay, so I don't know if there's any other questions. I just really encourage people to to practice communicating with animals, generally speaking, but also what this really brought up for me that I was already thinking as I was going through this and researching it was how important it is to soak in the energy of our loved ones and our pets. Just really being able to carry with us what they feel like, what their energy is, because it's going to help in doing this and going through grieving. I know we don't want to think that when we're with our pets about that coming, but unfortunately we will probably have to deal with it at some point. It's really a hard reality of being a pet parent. Okay, I'm trying to think if there's anything I missed. I just want to thank everybody for being here. I know this is a hard topic. It's heavy. And I appreciate anyone who stuck around to watch it. And as mentioned, check out the free meditation. And I have some guests coming next week who are wonderful. We've had them here before. Nancy and Amy from Tallgrass acupressure and they're going to have a great lesson. They are who I went to school for acupressure under with whatever, who I took it from. (laughs) And they've been on before, but they're just, they're really just incredible. So I really encourage you to come next week. Thank you so much, Mel Mac. You are the best. Love you. Thank you so much for everything you do. And please be safe. It sounds like you you were the one with the tornado coming. So please be safe. If you have a tornado coming, please be careful. Yeah, hard, but necessary. It also helps just to know, right, that we have people that understand and that support us and care about us. Keeping you in my prayers tonight, Queen Louis the First. <laughs> Yes, there will be a playback. It will be right after when this ends. It'll be right up there on YouTube. Thank you for asking and thank you for coming. All right, everybody. I appreciate you and I hope to see you here next week. And have a safe and good rest of the week and weekend. And God bless. Rub my belly. Rub my belly. 